The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Ah, very warm welcome to Scorebox. Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and plenty of headlines for you. So let's get into the business. Risk assets retreat. The Dow shedding nearly 200 points as U.S. equities kick off the first day of trading of a holiday-shortened week. Uh, on the back foot, that's weighing on Asian stocks too. Treasury yields uh, on the move after the Fed Governor Christopher Waller signals support for a pause this month, telling CNBC exclusively that good data has brought the central bank some time looking pretty good, but recessions often are caused by shocks that just come out of nowhere and hit the economy. So that that can always happen. Brent crude breaks through $90 a barrel after key OPEC plus producers agree to extend supply cuts by another three months. Uh, we'll talk you through the energy complex. We'll do this with the CEO of the German utility Unipa coming up at 7.30 Central European time. And chip designer Arm prices its IPO, targeting a $52 billion valuation ahead of a New York listing next week in what could be the largest public debut in two years. Plus, we're going to talk you through AI, recession risks and investment strategy with the head of the world's largest sovereign fund. That's Nikolai Tangen joining us a little later at 8.30 Central European time. Well, we got some direction from Wall Street back after Labor Day, but it was a downbeat market that we saw investors pulling back on stocks. And you can see after we wrapped up the trade last week, uh, the Friday session somewhat mixed on the back of a week of gains. But uh, kicking off the trading week, it was a, a day in the red, as you can see. Not too much on the ranges on the Nasdaq, but elsewhere across on the Dow and the S&P 500, suitably downbeat. If you look at the big moving stocks to the downside, Amazon for the S&P 500, Home Depot for the Dow. So again, that consumer discretionary side is the market's way up what they're seeing at this point. That is quite key at this stage. Uh, some of the other bigger areas of the market to take a look at, downside materials. We saw some weakness cropping up there, 1.8% lower banking names also in reverse down 1.8%. So two areas of the market certainly undermining the performance. Energy, though, was a better performer. We saw a bounce of half of a percent there. This on the back of production moves again. So just a quick look at what we saw across on Treasury markets. Investors still eyeing the story around interest rates. And don't forget, we had a market that saw the jobs report as somewhat Goldilocks. Uh, they came back into the market and still concerned about the, the rate path from here. 4.24 on that 10-year 4.94 on the short end. So we certainly saw just a little bit more movement on these yields for markets, despite some of the Fed speakers thinking that we did get what was a fairly good batch of data rolling across last week. In terms of the dollar trades as a result of those slightly supported yields, a dollar this morning, though, on the back foot versus most of the major currencies. We've got uh, sterling trading high by about a tenth of a percent, 125.75, although there has been slippage in recent days. So again, perhaps just uh, managing some of the decline and getting back in uh, just uh, subtle corrections this morning 107.34 we're one off that 108 handle on euro dollar even though we've got some morning upside as for dollar yen rates 
at the level 147.38 dollar on the back foot versus the safe haven japanese yen and dollar also uh, actually going in the opposite direction versus the chinese currency just to round out those trades a lot of the action in those oil markets yesterday the saudis and the russians decided to extend voluntary oil cuts to the end of this year uh, this is uh, despite what we've seen in recent weeks a rally in the oil markets so uh, this is uh, a market now trying to work out just how tight supply will be into the final months of this year 86.68 on WTI. That is a stable level this morning. And we're back above 90. Uh, this is what you're seeing on Brent prices. So we've uh, been bolstered to that time, that level for the first time since November. Back above a key threshold for some of the market watchers for oil. As for the Asian markets, this is how the trade is rolling out across the region on the back of some of that selling action stateside. Downbeat again. Uh, Australian stocks down three quarters, 1%. It's been a rough old trade around, uh, again, some of the data and the services activity yesterday for the mainland market. Uh, Chinese stocks slipping again, third of a percent down. Uh, just over six tenths off the Hong Kong market. Japanese stocks, uh, one patch of green at this stage, four tenths higher. So uh, I think uh, we've got a little bit of a challenging dialogue now for markets uh, seeing some of that red on wall street yesterday yeah yeah very interesting i mean it wasn't that much was it i mean what are we talking no. about 11 points down the nasdaq 19 points down the s p uh, and yet journalists have this habit it's kind of of doing our job i.e trying to ascribe something to every little move in the market and these were relatively little moves as well but yet we say oh it's all because of concerns about this or it's all because of concerns about this when actually the market's very often not about the bigger picture stuff. It's actually just about the individual flows. I mean, you know this better than anyone. You've been looking at the markets for decades. So, so I mean, what the market's trying to ascribe it to is the following, that the fact that the Federal Reserve Governor, Christopher Waller, uh, says a recent round of strong economic data will buy the central bank sometime as it decides whether additional rate hikes are needed to control inflation. Friday's non-farm payroll reports, well, the headline figure was mildly better than expected, but as Karen pointed out to you yesterday, there were revisions to the previous two months uh, and job openings fell to their lowest level in two and a half years. Uh, of course, that's the, the jolts data we saw earlier in the week, last week. Meanwhile, wage growth was below forecast. That's the bit that gets everyone so excited. And PCE inflation rose uh, just 0.2%. Now, Waller, speaking exclusively to CNBC, uh, he's considered one of the more hawkish members of the FOMC. So uh, he's encouraged by the way prices are trending. But, and again, who of you out there is surprised at this? But he did say the Fed can afford to hold rates higher for longer. I don't think one more hike would necessarily throw the economy into a recession if we did feel we needed to do one. Um... But at the same time, like I said, the job market is still pretty strong. I mean, these numbers are still near historic lows at 3.8% unemployment. So um, it's not obvious that, that we're in real danger of doing a lot of damage to the, uh, the job market, even if we raise rates one more time. He's not afraid of a hard landing. No one's afraid, are they, at the moment, if you look at the curves. Anyway, Waller also told CNBC the Fed's policy moves are having a direct impact on the economy quicker than previously. This is a, a tricky problem because there's never a, an exact number on when the lags tend to hit. And I think, as I gave a speech back in uh, July, that um, I think the lags are shorter. They're still there, but they're not like we don't have to wait two years for this stuff to start impacting on the economy. And we're seeing it now as far as I'm concerned. You're starting to see the economy slow down. We're seeing inflation coming down. And it's early been just a little over a year that we've done a lot of large hikes. So I think we're already seeing the impact. The other thing that I, 
People seem to have this idea that long and variable lags means there's this cliff effect, the, what I call the wily coyote moment where the economy's going long and then it just collapses. That's not how these typical lags, you know, they start having an effect, they build up, and then they eventually fade away. There's none of this cliff effect that everybody keeps talking about. Meanwhile, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says rates may need to go higher. Mester told a German newspaper that she sees upside risk to inflation and is paying particular attention to surging gasoline prices, but also reiterated that there's still a lot of data due before this month's decision. Mester said the Fed would need uh, time to the end to, of its hiking cycle and subsequent cuts before inflation falls to its 2% target. Now, Fed governors will be out in force this week doing the media rounds ahead of this month's key rate decision. We'll tell you who said what and bring you everything you need to know. So a ton of speakers, I think that's key. I mentioned uh, direction and uh, you sort of came back at me a little bit on the direction, but the reality is August was a very difficult month for stocks. It was uh, mostly... The start of August was a yes, very difficult month. Exactly, yeah. but yeah. then if you're going to trade the ranges, you got a little bit to trade, right? But if you're trying to hold out, it was very difficult because you had to see your way through the first start and then the rally on the back half. So if you just sat it out, I think that's why it was a difficult market. If yeah, you got involved, fair, fair then you might have seen but some, you for traders, some decent traders don't outcome. sit out, traders trade. Well, assuming you're on the right <laughs> Investors side. Investors sit out, traders trade. But assuming you're on the right side of the trade, because the narrative was that September was going to be the volatile month. So yeah. August should have been not too bad. So how much was brought forward? Uh, how much have we already seen? And I think if you look at the data, there have been fund outflows from stocks over the last number of weeks, according to Lippa. So, again, the market sentiment has just been wavering a little bit. Yeah. So I wonder whether the Fed speakers managed to correct that if they respond to the data on their outing this I'll week. I'll pick up with that, and I'll mildly challenge you. I think August is always going to be tricky because of the liquidity. Mm. Um, so you will get, dare I say it, for want of a better technical word, it, the market winging around a little bit. Uh, and so you'll always get a little of that. The other thing I will say is, by and large, the markets have done really well to come off the lows uh, of last year. We're only 6.6% away from the record high on the S&P, roughly the same on the record high uh, on the Dow as well. So given everything that's happened, I mean, look, we'll take a step back. Let's just kind of take a step back. We've had 550 basis points of hikes. We've seen the biggest repricing of money this century, if not way before that as well. And the market's only 6% off record highs, and those record highs aren't particularly cheap. And the valuation of the S&P isn't particularly cheap. In fact, arguably, it's expensive. But I know we can go into the subtleties about the 10 versus the 490. But the, by and large, stocks are not in cheap territory. And there is a hope out there <clears throat> that before some of the real refinancing ramifications hit the broader market, because we know that they haven't yet. A lot of people took wonderful advantage of lower rates, whether they are companies, whether they are individuals, sometimes even governments did it, not the British government, but sometimes even governments uh, took advantage of the lower financing costs as well. So we know the full ramifications are taking a while. Dare I say, may I presume to say, there are cumulative and lagged effects out there to use the parlance of the day. And here's the other thing, and, and, and I love listening to Waller and Mester, and they're all really, obviously, of course we want to listen to them in case they say something that's slightly out of kilter. But I hate to say it, guys, but they're all saying the same thing. We're very attentive. We're very watchful. We're very excited by the, uh, the, uh, the direction, the trajectory of the data, but we're not there yet. The battle isn't won yet. Whether you're in Jackson Hole or DC or some writers club in New York, it's the same spiel. And I'll just say one more thing. 3.8%. 3.8%. 
is what a lot of the analysts think that we're economists. Uh, is what we're going to get for the GDP growth on an annualised basis in the third quarter. Oh, you're not talking about the unemployment rate. <laughs> no, well, that's another point. But boom, if you don't cut rates when you've got 3.8% um, interest um, uh, growth trajectory, accelerating very hard, almost double what we saw in the first half of the year. Wow, it's a brave central bank governor that does that. And I'll say one more thing, even though I promised I wouldn't. The oil price is ticking up fairly aggressively on what our friends over at, not even OPEC, forget about OPEC, There's all the pretense, the pretense that this is OPEC just being thrown out the window. This is Saudi with a little bit of help from their friends, the, the Russians. Yeah, I mean, the oil price has been a fairly dramatic move overnight. It was also a supportive factor for stocks in August. So the question is what happens over the course of this month and the precursor is now that we seem to have a higher trade around oil. And we saw a company yesterday that was very much trapped to the fortunes of price fluctuations in the commodity. So I think that's going to be an interesting factor if we get a, a leg here for the uh, major uh, market moves on the Dow. That'll be interesting if oil comes into the mix here again in yeah. the month of September. Yeah. Let's uh, push on to ARM because there's another test of sentiment out there. ARM plans to price shares at between 47 and $51 in its long-awaited IPO expected later this month, implying a valuation of up to $52 billion. The chip designer says customers including Apple, Nvidia and Samsung have expressed an interest in shares ahead of the listing, which is set to be the biggest in the U.S. this year. Leslie Picker has the story. Arm is hitting the road marketing its IPO to investors in what's likely to be the largest in years. SoftBank, which took Arm private in 2016, is selling all 96 million shares in the offering and is asking investors for as much as $51 each. That implies an offering size of about $5 billion, of which 15% is already claimed by Arm's large tech customers. Think NVIDIA, Apple and Google, which have indicated an interest in purchasing a stake at the IPO price. The IPO implies a fully diluted valuation, one that includes restricted stock at $55 billion. That's below the $64 billion that Arm was reportedly valued at last month when SoftBank bought back the remaining quarter of the company it didn't already own from the Vision Fund. However, it implies a decent return from the $32 billion that Arm was valued at when SoftBank took it private seven years ago. But it's still relatively expensive when compared to earnings, which declined this year. Arm's non-diluted market cap at the high end of the range represents about 100 times trailing earnings for its fiscal year through March. That's about double the level of peer synopsis and cadence. For CNBC Business News, I'm Leslie Picker. Arjun spoke exclusively with Qualcomm CEO Christiane Almon, who said he sees room for growth in China despite its tensions with the United States. We have not been restricted today, uh, and I think we have been very focused not on data centers. We've been focused on bringing intelligence to phones, to PCs, to cars, to the Internet of Things. So, so far, I think we continue to see opportunities to grow in China. Um, and as you look off these tensions, I think our view is we continue to be optimistic that you know there's going to be opportunities for win-win cooperation. I think Qualcomm has been a great example of that in our China uh, relationship. Uh, our relationship has respect of intellectual property. All of our Chinese customers are paying uh, for their uh, 4G and 5G licenses. It has the ability to provide growth for every country. Interesting from Qualcomm there. Right, coming up on the show, two of the world's largest oil producers, as I may have just mentioned, extend production cuts triggering global supply concerns. But we'll dig into 
Europe's energy outlook with the Unipers here. Michael Lewis, as potential strikes in Australia, of course, also threaten the continent's LNG supplies. And later this morning, we'll bring you an exclusive conversation with Norge Bank Investment Management CEO Nikolai Tangen. Uh, that is coming up at 8.30 Central European Time. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Meta staff must now return to the office for at least three days a week after its new mandate went into effect Tuesday. The social media giant began notifying staff of the changes in June. The rules will not affect Meta's current roster of remote workers. A spokesperson told CNBC that the firm believes distributed work will remain important in the future. Recruitment firm Randstad found a significant gap between employees' aspirations to use artificial intelligence to upgrade their skills and employer investments in training. It also found more people are excited about the prospect of AI than concerned about the impact on their jobs. Sandra Fan-Nordanta is the CEO of Randstad and joins us now. Sandra, thank you very much for joining us. Just looking at your stats here, this is fascinating. What a 20-fold surge in demanding generative AI skills is what's seen in your report. 50% of employees believing the skill set will be essential, yet just one in 10 have been offered any new AI training in the last year. Is that uh, just uh, the reality that uh, some employers think, look, this is going to be a cost saving. We're not going to actually be recruiting as much. This is going to be a job saver. So there's no point investing in training. No, I would say not at all, uh, Karen. I would say uh, business and our clients are as excited about uh, artificial intelligence uh, as their people. I mean, things are just going very fast. The 20-fold increase over the past nine months is just tremendous. Uh, people are excited. People want to learn. Uh, but businesses uh, have trouble or challenges catching up, I would say. So I think it's a, it's a timing issue. So, Sander, how long is it going to take for AI to disrupt the workforce and for there to be a dramatic impact on workflow in future? Well, AI is already out there in the workforce today and things will go very, very, very quickly. Um, it's not so much a matter of disrupting, I would say, because we see AI very much as a complement to what uh, people do in their day-to-day -day jobs. Helping the doctor do a better job, helping the market and marketing analyst do preparing a better and more personalized uh, campaign, helping the financial analyst to go through all the numbers and then look at what the issues are. Uh, so it is, it, it's a tool that will help people do a better job. Wanda, always lovely to speak to you again. Uh, look, I, I love your optimism and I get it for the short to medium term. It is a complementary tool. But if this technology goes the way by technologists, I've been told and Karen's been told and perhaps you've been told as well that it is going, 
We're not going to need that doctor. We're not going to need that investment analyst. Dare I say it, we might not even need that TV anchor, God forbid, as well. So so the fact of the matter is, Sander, this technology is at such an early stage when it really takes off. The truth is, most of us aren't going to be needed doing the jobs we're doing now. Well, the TV anchors are here to stay, uh, Steve, and definitely you, of course. But... um, you know, I think there will always be a need for creativity, for thinking, for communication, for engagement with people, for people working with people. So I'm not at all concerned about that. I think actually AI is a very welcome contribution to our productivity in a world that is talent scarce these days, and that will continue to grow. But companies will look at that improvement to, uh, to productivity and they'll do the same as the auto industry has done. They'll do the same uh, as the service industry in IT have done. Is that You don't need the bodies on a production line when you've got brilliant robots doing everything uh, to, the, to the nth degree, to a nano level and getting it stunningly accurate. And also robots don't need a tea break as well, Sandra, as well. We've seen what some technologies uh, are doing. I have to say, I think this is the mother of all those potential innovations. And I hate to, I also want to say, I'm no Luddite. I don't dislike technology. I love technology. I just see this one uh, as different from pretty much most of the ones that have come before it. No, but think about education. Think about healthcare. Think about uh, service industries and restaurants, etc. I mean, we have a shortage of people in almost all mature of our markets today. So a productivity increase on the tasks that actually are repetitive and not so interesting to the benefit of tasks that are interesting and very much needed and that need that engagement, I think is is a good thing. Sandra, can I ask a basic question as to what AI skills actually mean? I mean, the likes of Microsoft and Alphabet are rolling out these products in basic software. Does that mean anyone who uses a Word document in future actually has AI skills, that this is just going to be embedded in the background of some of the software we use? Right. Now, so where do we see the demand for AI skills? First of all, there's a big demand around people who can help businesses define where to apply AI. So you could allow a role on the intersection of business and technology. Then I would say there's AI application development, and that's not your traditional programming. That is how to develop applications for AI. For instance, I sat down with our team last Friday that is developing an application to help write job descriptions. Uh, very interesting. Uh, the so-called prompt engineers, how to ask AI the questions. Uh, you can ask anything, but if you want to get the right answer, you have to ask in a specific way. And then I would say, Karen, lots of roles around data, gathering data, because for our clients, you know, making use of their own data in the AI will be their differentiator. So ranging from business to technology and everything uh, in between, I would say. Sander, something that surprised me at this stage is how the creatives have jumped on AI. It's sort of not the field you would expect leading the charge. I mean, a lot of the advertisers are quickly building in AI models at this stage. You'd think it'd be in other industries. Has that surprised you to an extent too? No, not at all, because in, in campaigns and content, there's a lot of repetitive work and a lot of work that can be supported by AI. Uh, how to develop a campaign or at least a draft of a campaign. Uh, how to uh, localize uh, campaigns, how to personalize campaigns. Uh, you know, AI and, and and the data in the background, of course, can play a very important role there. So I can totally see that they jump on it because, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Sandra, uh, we've given that a really good go and I, I can't wait to hear how this evolves because I think we all think it's fascinating, all three of us. Look, I want to ask you just some current questions about the current jobs market, if I may, seeing as I've got you here as well. 
How's it looking? I mean, people are beginning to really worry about the PMIs across Europe. Karen and I did a whole host yesterday and none of them were that good. Plus, I've just come back from Ambrosetti and the real worry wasn't Italy. It was a German manufacturing and industrial recession, which may already be upon us as well. How are you seeing things in Europe, sir? It's definitely it's definitely challenging. I'm not so negative. Uh, you know, our base case for 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 the for the quarters to come is is sort of sideways, flattish, uh, which is not particularly optimistic, but not particularly pessimistic uh, either. I would say. All right, sir. Really lovely to see you. We always enjoy your company. We always enjoy your smooth comments that anchors will still be needed as well, Sander. Thank, thank goodness for that. As will top-level CEOs, sir. Back at you. Uh, Sander van der Nordender, who is the CEO of Randstad as well. Last time I interviewed him, of course, I was out in Geneva. It was so beautiful. Well, just as well, TV anchors are still in demand. Otherwise, those trips would be off too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I don't want to lose yeah. those lovely uh, uh, Swiss Alps Geneva. and Italian exactly. lake trips, do I? You can't get a robot doing that just yet. Anyway, the FTC will reportedly file a lawsuit against Amazon this month. Wow. After it failed to offer specific uh, concessions to the regulator seeking a settlement over antitrust claims. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, the suit will target a number of Amazon's business practices, including favoring its own products over competitors. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, here's an interesting move as well. Of course, um, we've had a bit of a eruption at the top of the commission. Uh, to be fair, this is a commission that has to resign pretty much or be re-elected re after June next year. But the EU Justice Commissioner, Didier Renders, uh, is set to take over as the bloc's competition chief as the incumbent, Margrethe Vestager, uh, bids to lead the European Investment Bank. Now, Vestager, who dished out heavy fines to big tech for anti-competitive practices, is taking unpaid leave to concentrate on her candidacy. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.